Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, founder of the Sugar Science, and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alejandro Casado. Um, he's a professor of medicine at University of Miami, and his research focuses on the biology of human islets and how basically the islets interact with its environment. The concept of homeostasis is near and dear to his heart. Welcome, Alejandro. So hello, everybody, and it's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I just wanted to just quickly ask, we talked a little bit before uh, the, we started recording that um, you are, uh, were a neuroanatomist, but how did you become scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? So in 2005, I, I got the opportunity to work at the Diabetes Institute in Miami to direct a lab related to the biology of human islets. And, and this was in the context of uh, human islet transplantation uh, to treat type 1 diabetes. And they needed somebody to characterize the human islets in, in this context. And it was a great opportunity because I think we were among the first who were able to study human islets in vitro and then later on also in vivo. Yeah, that which is with type 1 diabetes, yeah. Yeah, in which we talked about that the sort of the hardscape, the neuronal landscape of the pancreatic islets is still um, kind of a, an uncharted territory in many ways. And so we're hoping to, well, we're looking forward to speaking to you about your work in that space. Um, what can you tell us, what sort of, can you give a thumbnail sketch about the work being done in your... I lost you. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I'm going to stop my video. For a while? Yeah, I'm going to stop for a minute. Uh, my video, maybe it'll be better. Can you talk to us about your thoughts um, about the work that's being done in the, the realm of mapping the nervous um, or the innovation of the pancreatic islet? So, well, one of the first things I wanted to study is what are the nerves that reach into the, the human islet? And, and this is my interest because I'm originally a neuroscientist. So I thought, okay, let's see what is going on there. And most of the work until then had been performed on, in the mouse pancreas or in other species. But I think at that time it was difficult. It was, there was very little about the innervation of the human islet. So that's, that was work that was published in 2011. We wanted to know which nerves from, that come from the brain go, go into the pancreas and which ones go to the beta cell in particular. And from that work, you know, what, um, you, what did you find? So, so one thing that was surprising is that there are not a lot of uh, vagal, so that is major nerve that goes from the brain to, the, to most of the visceral organs. To our surprise, there, was, there were not a lot of fibers reaching into the islet to target the beta cell in the human islet. And that was in contrast with the mouse islet where a lot of these vagal fibers contact beta cells. And that, and that, and that led actually investigators to think that beta cells could be under vagal control. We could not see that in the human islet, but instead we found that in the alpha cells, actually the neighbors of the beta cells, they are able to secrete acetylcholine and they express the enzymes that produce acetylcholine. 
So, but that's a, a story that is different from the nerves. So we are still looking for nerves that go to the human eyelid. And most of them are probably sympathetic nerves that travel in other nerves. And you're, are you postulating that some of these other nerves are coming from the gut itself, the small intestine and the enteric nervous system? This could be, that could be an exciting possibility. I think the sympathetic nerves, they travel along the, the conventional sympathetic nerves. But I think that in addition to that, there could be nerves that reaching all the way from the duodenum and from the gut into the pancreas. Yeah. This was explored maybe more than 10 years ago and sort of abandoned, but I think the time is, is, is very good now to start looking at that connection too. Can you just talk a teeny bit about the, there's gap junctions, right, between the alpha and beta cells in the human islet? I think the, there are, it's clear that there are gap junctions between um, beta cells. It is now also clear that they, there, is, there are gap junctions between beta cells and delta cells. I think the, the evidence in the human eye for gap junctions between the alpha cells and beta cells is not that clear yet. But yeah. I would have to do myself a literature search there. Yeah, I, it's just kind of curious just to sort of think about the, the, the architecture, the connectivity of it, uh, of the eyelids to each other and then to the, the larger system. And I think it's um, really interesting the paper, uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the paper that just sort of came out. Well, this one that's uh, a nervous breakdown may stop, that may stop autoimmune diabetes and cell metabolism uh, came out in February 4th, 2020. Um, what, what, what that pa what's that paper about? Well, the paper is a, is a commentary on another paper that appeared in, in Nature um, uh, Biotechnology from a French group. And in that paper, and what they were able to, to accomplish is to stimulate a nerve, one of the, the ones that I mentioned before, a sympathetic nerve that goes to the pancreas as well as to the lymph nodes that are associated with the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And they were able to stop the immune attack on the beta cells in a mouse model of type 1 diabetes. So I, we thought it was exciting, and yes. uh, we wrote a commentary about it uh, because it really showed that the idea of simulating nerves uh, can be something that, is that can be applied to type 1 diabetes and maybe also other diseases. But the truth, the truth is that until now, it was difficult to know where exactly to simulate the nerves, what types of nerves to simulate. The problem, for instance, with simulating vagal, the vagus is that the beta cell actually disappears in type 1 diabetes, so it doesn't make it a lot of sense to try to stimulate the beta cells through the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what they did is they tried to inhibit the immune cells that are getting activated in the lymph nodes already at the level of the lymph node before they even can go to the pancreas to destroy the beta, the beta cells. So that is, I, th I thought it was a, a very exciting yeah. and something that can lead to more clinical studies. I, I totally agree. That was Philippe Blanco's uh, paper down in the from the south of France. And um, other companies that are sort of looking at this include Setpoint, Kevin Tracy's company, that uh, have shown that vagal stimulation can result in decreased inflammation in some um, models um, and so uh, disease models. So 
those are, this is sort of like a brave new world. It's really an exciting time. Um, I'm very excited to watch how um, a lot of these papers that, that are set to come out, um, what they show. I think, um, let's talk a little bit about your, your GABA paper. Okay, so GABA is another molecule, or it's a molecule that is used in the brain as a neurotransmitter. And outside the brain, probably the highest levels of GABA are found in the pancreatic islet. And most of it is produced by beta cells. Mm -hmm. And originally, people thought that, and it's still the case, that the beta cell releases GABA to inhibit alpha cells, the surrounding alpha cells. So it makes sense because when the beta cells get activated with high glucose, high glycemia, uh, they will, at the same time, they want to inhibit glucagon secretion from the alpha cells to reduce its contribution to increase glucose uh, levels in the blood. So that makes sense. But since that initial observation in 89, published in Nature, GABA has been found to inhibit immune cells. To, and some, some investigators postulated that GABA is also a molecule that could stimulate the conversion of alpha cells to beta cells. Mm. So a lot of studies suggested that GABA is sort of the miracle cure for, for a lot of things that go awry in the islet. But some of these results are controversial. And there were a couple of papers that showed that the initial data on the conversion of alpha cells to beta cells could not be replicated. Yeah. But independently of that, the truth is that we didn't know how GABA leaves the beta cell. Right. So if it's used as a neurotransmitter in the brain, in principle, it should be go, uh, leaving the beta cell together with insulin in the granules. Right. But when we started looking at it, the release of GABA was not dependent on stimulating beta cells the conventional way. It mm -hmm. seemed to be leaking out of the beta cell constantly, with, but, but with certain pulses, yeah. but unstimulated. It was there all the time. And that was a big surprise. Uh, that is a big surprise. I mean, it's, it's just not conventional. Normally, it's exocytosed with, you know, from a exactly. synaptic vesicle. So it's very unusual. It is kind of curious that, you know, the pancreas itself is releasing, has a pulsatile release of insulin too. Sort of like, what is it, every 15 minutes or something? Yeah, yeah. The, the pulses are uh, more in the range of five minutes. The five minutes. Yeah, five sorry. Minutes, both in vivo and in vitro. And they are actually pretty constant between species. I mean, and, and you can see that also in, in mice. And it's, um, well, people postulate that it, it allows for a liver to be more responsive to insulin if, if you or other insulin, uh, other targets of insulin would respond better to insulin if it's not exposed to ins insulin constantly, but with pulses. But nobody has really tested that, that idea so far. But a lot of the behavior of beta cells and of the islet is, is actually oscillatory. It's dynamic. It's, um, it's periodic. And, yeah. and we found that gamma behaves like that too. And we don't know if this pulsatile release of GABA could be a sort of a pacemaker. That is an, a, a hypothesis that our colleague in Gainesville, Ed Phelps, is actually pursuing. Yeah, it almost seems, I mean, it just was reminiscent of almost like the, the way a heart cell, uh, you know, operates in a pulsatile manner. 
but it's it's just so it's just so new. I mean, the whole what was the pulse? What was the timing of the timing? Is very similar to the yeah. timing of of insulin, mm-hmm. but we were unable to combine uh, measurements of insulin with measurements of GABA. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult for us to do, but it would be interesting to find out, to see, to investigate if this insulin pulse or in general the periodic behavior of the islets depend on a healthy GABA release. We don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts about the, uh, we did talk about this a little bit before, but the fact that GAD65, which is so closely associated with GABA um, and is necessary for the production of GABA, GAD65 is one of the first um, you know, biomarkers for type 1 diabetes. It is an antigen and one of the first yeah, discovered antigens for type 1 diabetes, discovered among others by Steiner Beckerskopf, who is a co-author of, of the GABA paper that we published last year. Mm-hmm. And the, it's interesting. I think that GAT65 levels are very high in the islets, so they are already good candidates for being something that immune cells detect. How exactly this works, I probably will, we would have to ask Steinem about that. There is a theory or a theory, no, there are some results by uh, a group led by Unanwe showing that macrophages, local macrophages hmm. that is, reside in the islet, they are able to catch insulin granules and everything associated with it. And maybe GAT65 is st- sticking to the granules and that GAT65 is then presented to other immune cells later on. So that could be one way. I don't know what Steinem thinks about that, but we can we, we could ask her in another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope to. We actually are going to be hosting some off-the-record um, events where scientists can kind of have you know together gather and have an off-the-record conversation about um, these types of topics. So she'll be a great one to uh, invite. But I think, um, yeah, I, I just think this whole orchestration. I was talking to another scientist the other day and I said, you know, the whole thing is, is just a bad ballet, you know, the way <laughs> type 1 diabetes happens, you know, instead, you know, the, the ballerina is thrown and it dropped and then the whole thing unfolds from there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting that everyone is approaching the, um, you, you know, the, um, the bad ballet from their own vantage point, their own seat in the, in the, um, you know, in the, the arena and, and everyone sees a different thing and it will be so important for all these observations to come together. And I do think that, um, you know, having the, the background that you have in, in neuroscience and people coming from interdisciplinary areas have a lot of value to add because they're seeing things differently, you know? Yeah, I think there is more awareness now that it's not just the beta cell that is failing alone and being attacked, but Mm -hmm. that you need a combination of factors uh, to have a functional eyelid. It's not just the beta cell, it's it's surroundings. Mm -hmm. People are studying now the, the blood vessels that go to the eyelid, the, the nerves that go to the eyelid, everything related to the structure of the island, including the extracellular matrix. So there's more awareness about that. And then I think another aspect that is important is that there's more and more a focus on studying the human island. 
Yeah. Because it has been shown in the last, actually only recently, but yeah, let's say in the last 10 to 15 years, that many things are different in the human eyelid. And I think there are new initiatives. I mean, NPOT, the network of pancreatic organ donors, comes to my mind, who are now responsible for getting material from human donors to study what is going on in the human eyelid in health as well as in disease. Yeah. And one of the striking results was that the immune cell infiltration in the human eyelid seems to be very different from that in the typical mouse model, which is the non-obese diabetic mouse, the NOD mouse, which is normally used as a type 1 diabetes model. But somehow the immune attack is, seems to be very different in the, in the human eyelid. How so? Can you do a quick compare contrast of yeah, the, first, yeah, the, uh, immune system, the first immune cells on the scene of the crime? Yeah, I'm not, I have to say that I'm not an immunologist, but from what I've seen and read is that, um, first of all, the number of immune cells is much lower in the human eyelid when they are infiltrated than in the mouse eyelid, in the NOD mouse eyelid. Then the other thing is that they don't seem to be parked at the edge of the eyelid. So they don't have these uh, so-called peri-insulitis. Mm -hmm. You see in a mouse where you see hundreds of immune cells, auto-reactive immune cells, parked um, in the borders of the eyelid, waiting to get in, into the eyelid. Mm -hmm. It's not that typical in a human. Another interesting thing is that it seems that not all eyelids are infiltrated. Mm. So that was also a surprising result, and that many eyelids actually survive the immune attack even after uh, overt di uh, I mean, diagnosis of overt diabetes. So that was also surprising. Yeah, there's some talk about how some of them go silent. They go dark for a while. Right, right. And maybe they can be recovered later on in diabetes. I mean, this opens, I mean, it's not only changing our ideas, but it's also opening new avenues for therapy. Yeah. It's a real intersection between, um, I think this is a very exciting place for young scientists to go to study type 1 diabetes because it's an intersection of two of the big, the last frontiers, right? Neurobiology, basically, and immunology. So it's a very exciting intersection. And to dissect out what's happening there will be, will have a lot of uh, influence on other um, areas of science. I think, um, I, I also want to ask you, so just sort of circling back to the GABA, you know, GAD, right? Glutamate acid decarboxylase is a rate-limiting enzyme for the production of GABA. So just sort of hypothetically, if you're seeing the pulsatile release of GABA, then uh, do you expect, I mean, how, would you expect to see some kind of um, increase or, you know, concordance of the, of the GAD, uh, an increase, uh, would it wax and wane too inside the cell? Well, yes, I think that um, the GAD65 levels and the beta cell probably produce GABA constantly mm. at a certain level. And the mechanisms for the pulsatility are probably related more with the channels that allow the GABA to leave the beta cell. I see, but, yeah. But one in, very important um, result of the paper that we published last year with Ed Phelps and Steinum 
was that GAD 65 levels are really substantially uh, decreased in type 1 and type 2 diabetes mm. to the point where we cannot see GABA leaving the beta cells. Mm. So we were able to uh, record from uh, islets from uh, type 2 diabetic donors. We have not done it from type 1 diabetic donors, but we were, we were not able to detect GABA um, being released from human islets of type 2 diabetic donors. And at the same time, we found that the GAT65 levels are also uh, very, very low in those islets. So maybe, we, we don't know if it's a co the cause of, or a consequence of diabetes. So many things go wrong in the beta cells in diabetes. Mm. But it will be interesting to see if that it contributes to the pathogenesis of uh, diabetes. Um, okay, I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll sort of get your... Uh... Uh, finishing thoughts, but you know, what about relin? Relin's an extracellular matrix protein. You know, it's in the liver, it increases after liver damage, and then it sort of decreases. Um, in pancreatic cancer, there's a decrease of relin. Um, methylation can cause downregulation of this relin gene. Could relin be part of how the vagal nerve or any other nerves are interacting with the beta cell? For instance, what if the beta cell is, is incorrectly innervated for whatever reason, the vagal tone is down or something changes, and then the beta cell just starts misfunctioning and then is, you know, the immune system just does its job. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I'm not aware about the study about reeling in, in, the, in the extra pancreas or in the liver. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, the, the themes that you're touching on is uh, the communication maybe or the interactions between the exocrine tissues and the, and the islet themselves. So very little is done in that aspect. And given that in the human you have more vagal innervation of the exocrine tissue, it could be that those signals are then transmitted to the islet indirectly. So there's a lot of research that still needs to be done in that, in that field. So I'm not aware, I mean, I think it will be difficult to find out exactly what the vagus does to beta cells in the human situation. And a lot of the data from the mouse concerning the vagal efferent innervation cannot be extrapolated automatically to the human situation. That's one of yeah. the problems. Yeah. Well, now that you're mapping it out, that's very clear. Well, welcome neuroscientists to the world of, of type 1 diabetes. Sign up today. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask, do you have any other you know, further comments or anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think it's a good moment in, in, in history to be in doing research in biology. We have amazing tools. We're actually finding out uh, mechanisms, physiological mechanisms, and a lot of things can be also transplanted into the clinic. So I encourage uh, young people, high school students, to join us in the future. We need more people, and especially we need people with different ideas. And, and it, it is a good life to be a scientist. We are, we are allowed to be creative, and I think that finding a, a vocation is a secret to happiness in life. I totally agree. 
Thank you again for talking to us. And I look forward to um, speaking to you again in the future. I'm sure this is just going to, this is the tip of the iceberg, these findings that you've got. And um, I'm, I'm, um, I'm convinced that there's going to be a lot more papers coming from your lab and your collaborations. Well, thank you very much, Monica. It has been a pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for listening to us. <laughs> thank you.